Gospel of Luke, chapter number 11. Luke's Gospel, chapter number 11. It's the second part of our short series on spiritual disciplines we're calling Resolved, playing on the fact that at this time of the year, at the beginning of a new year, there are a great many of you who are making certain resolutions within your lives. You've made um, dieting resolutions and exercise resolutions, perhaps financial resolutions, maybe none of those kinds of resolutions. But I, I hope that if none other, you're making some spiritual resolutions about how you're, you'll conform your life to fit a God-honoring pattern over the course of the next year. For me, the first of the year is always a good opportunity to evaluate practices where I am in terms of my walk and relationship with Jesus, and to, again, make certain resolutions about what the next days will look like with regards to walking faithfully with Jesus. We talked last week about Bible reading, about the reading, study, and memorization of the Scripture. And hopefully by now, several days into the new year, you've resolved in your own way to spend time with God's Word on a daily basis, to meditate on God's Word, to study, to look deeper into God's Word, even to memorize God's Word, to hide it away in your heart that you might not sin against God. This, this morning, I want to talk about a spiritual discipline that goes hand-in-hand hand with all other spiritual disciplines. I, I don't know that you can necessarily say that one spiritual discipline is more important than the others, but I can say to you that none of the disciplines go apart from the discipline of prayer. In Luke chapter 11, we have this unique opportunity to peer into the conversation between Jesus and his disciples as they ask him not just in general about prayer, but specifically that Jesus would teach them how to pray. Luke chapter 11, we'll read together beginning in verse 1. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says he was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight, and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find it. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for these insights from the Savior himself with regards to prayer. I pray, Lord, that you'd be pleased over the course of the next moments to do the miracle of new birth in the hearts of unbelievers here, that you would call the saints closer to you, that you would sanctify and seal us through the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would convict us, Lord, over uh, petty sins and sins that are great. Lord, that you'd remove the cloud of guilt that stands between here in heaven. God, as much as anything, I pray that you would make of us a praying people, that each person here would resolve in their heart with earnestness, with sincerity, without hypocrisy, God, that we will meditate upon your goodness and in your fellowship through prayer with each day that passes, indeed with every moment that passes. Help us to consider the high call of this text and the high call of countless others throughout your word that call upon us to spend time with you in fellowship, Lord. May you make of us an army of people who pray without ceasing. God, be pleased that through the channel of prayer, great power would be granted your church, not for our vain glory, but that the world might know that Jesus is king, that you would abide among us, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I don't have to convince you, you know by personal experience, the power and the importance of prayer. You know that your day shapes up differently when you've spent time with God in prayer. You know that your day often shapes up disastrously when you fail to spend time with God in prayer. And the enemies are, are common. We struggle against the same foe with regards to prayer. Busyness and distraction, those are among our top enemies. They're great opponents to prayerfulness in our life. You jump up in the morning and your first thought is all of the things that need to be accomplished that day. Or perhaps at some point along the way, throughout the day, you're reminded of the need to pray, but you're also aware of all of the countless other things that need to be done. And in your self-deception, you rush away believing that somehow, someway, you'll be able to accomplish those tasks apart from calling upon the efficiency that God is pleased to grant through the work and power of, of His Holy Spirit. The, the greatest enemy to the prayerfulness of God's people is our self-deception. It's our pride. It's the belief that in our own power, through our own personal efforts, through our determination, our work ethic, things which are, by the way, noble and good, that we're able to see through the assignments that God has given us. I think of men through the history of the church who were highly efficient as ministers, men like Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation who was, by the way, not only leading the Reformation, he was teaching in the college, he was writing liturgy for the church, he was writing music for the church, he was writing catechism for children's education, he was essentially rewriting the constitution of the church 
in so much as we observe practices outside of the direct teaching of the Scripture. He, he was brought before a, a, a council to be tried for his heresy, and when he was brought before the council, his case was unbelievable even for those who wanted to find him guilty because they could not fathom that any one man could produce the written material that this man had produced in such a short period of time. He was translating the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into the German vernacular so that common people could have access to the Word of God. And the same man was said to have begun each day with three hours of prayer. In response to the question as to how he found the time to spend three hours each day in prayer, he simply explained, I don't have time not to spend three hours in prayer. Your effectiveness, your efficiency, your ability to see through the task that God has given you is not about your work ethic or your self-determination. Now, if you have no self-determination and you have a bad work ethic, you should pray about that and God will adjust them for you. But I want you to know that ultimately and finally, our ability to see through what God has set before us for the day is an ability provided through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And if there's nothing that's clear about our text, it must be this, that as we seek and ask and knock, our good and faithful God who is in heaven is well pleased to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. The disciples come to Jesus in verses 1 and 2 and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. The way John the Baptist teaches his disciples, instruct us how it is that we should pray. It was a common thing for a rabbi or a teacher to instruct those under him, his disciples, as to how they should pray. It may have been rote prayers, but often it was simply a structure by which they were praying, a, a pattern by which they might pray, or certain assigned times throughout the day when they would pray. Maybe there was a schedule for fasting, certain day, days when there would be certain observations with regards to prayer and special meditation on the teaching of, of God's Word. And the disciples have observed this in John the Baptist's disciples. And so they say reasonably to Jesus, in the same way that John has taught his disciples to pray, teach us how it is that we should pray. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this is a, a, a common refrain among believing people. It's frequent for me to be in conversation with someone and them to ask or to comment I just don't feel as though I know how to pray. I, I don't know if I know how to, I don't know what to say. And then here's the other thing, which may be a, a specifically American or Western thing. We really struggle in prayer staying on task. We have attention deficit disorder with regards to our prayer lives. We begin to pray, and, and very quickly our thoughts begin to wander to other things that might need to be addressed or taken care of or dealt with in our own life. And so we meander in our thoughts away from the things of God onto the things of this world. And so as Jesus begins in verse number 2 to teach the disciples to pray, I want you to know that what he's giving them here is a basic outline or a pattern by which they might pray. Now, this is a version of the Lord's Prayer, as many of you have memorized it from the Sermon on the Mount, only slightly modified here in Luke's account, Jesus presumably discussing this issue with the disciples on another instant. 
But, but I, I want you to note that there's a basic framework here within the Lord's Prayer, as Luke tells it, that might serve for you a pattern for prayer. If you're a person who would say this morning, I don't know how to pray, or I struggle with staying on task in prayer, jot down this outline and implement it in your personal prayer life. Jesus said in verse 2, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. It's almost hard to read that, not in the King James language. It doesn't roll off the way it does in the old language, but you get the gist of Jesus' prayer here. He begins in verse 2, Father, your name be honored as holy. More commonly, we've memorized this language as, Father, hallowed be thy name. Jesus begins here with the prayer of worship. Worship is where all prayer begins. And and I think there's probably a, a real link between worship and prayerfulness. It has been said often that prayerlessness is practical atheism. When the presence of God in your life is far from your mind, when when you're being subject to the lordship of the sovereign of all sovereign is far from your mind, you'll be inclined to to be prayerless. There's a reason why we pray when we're under duress. Because under duress, we are reminded of how small we are that the real circumstances of our life are beyond our control. Prayerlessness enters in when we fool ourselves into believing that we have control over anything whatsoever. Ultimately, all things are in the hands of God. When we remember that, when when we're meditating on that reality, that, that, that we are in the midst of the moving tide of God's good providence, that all things are in His hands, that indeed He has the whole world in His hands, In that state of mind, in that frame of thinking, we're far more inclined to spend time with him in prayer. Jesus says, Father, a title of of endearment. From time to time, I find myself in a Bible study group, especially among really young people, where there's a lot of of, of real effort at at, at being really friendly with, with Jesus, you know. And someone will say something like bro or dude or something. And I, it always feels so disingenuous to me. I, I, I do want you to know that Jesus is your friend. He is. That he loves us and he draws near to us. That, that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But, but don't forget in your expressions of endearment and nearness to God that he is God. Jesus says, Father, hallowed be thy name. In in, in other words, may your name be magnified in all the world. May much be made of the name of the Father. He begins with with worship. I said to you earlier that this is a discipline that belongs in union with the discipline we discussed last week, the reading of the Bible. If you're reading your Bible... And you're finding in the scripture the character of God revealed. And that doesn't prompt you to worship and to pray. You might be reading the Bible wrong. 
Here Jesus says, Father, your name be honored as holy. Hallowed be thy name. May much be made of your name because he is infinitely worthy of all worship and all praise. Jesus begins with the prayer of worship. Now, this calls for a little restraint because for most of us, when we begin to pray, we run immediately to what the most pressing need of the hour is. God, God help me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it a, a, a thing to pray. My first thought, I want my first thought each morning to be, God, help me to get up effectively, efficiently, in a timely way to move through this day in a God-exalting way. That, I want that to be my first prayer. God, help me today. That's, that's, that's my go-to. And perhaps in some sort of summary way, the reference to God as God, the reference to God as Father is some expression of worship. But if you can manage to rein yourselves in and meditate long here at the point of worship, it will empower and encourage what remains of your prayer life. Spend time in prayer reflecting on who God is, the power of his name. His glory, His holiness, His righteousness, His worthiness to be praised above all others. Jesus says, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Even in what I've described here as prayer, as worship, or the prayer of worship, there's a transition into the praying for the next category of concern here. Jesus prays the prayer of, of worship or gives us an example of prayer as worship and then transitioned into praying for the lost by my estimation. May your name be hallowed or hallowed be thy name. May your name be honored. Not only suggests that Jesus intends that the world would see God for who he is, a statement of worship, but it also intends that Jesus wants to communicate to the world how it is that God is worthy of all worship and praise. He says further, your kingdom come. May your heavenly kingdom descend and envelop this world. That men and women and boys and girls of every tribe and tongue and nation know that God is God of all. That Jesus is Lord and Savior who has died to take our sin away and raised again the third day. This is how Jesus instructs us to pray. Now, eerily absent from many of our prayer lives are the very specific requests that God would be at work to save the lost people in our life. Begin to evaluate your own prayer life. Begin to think about the way we pray within our groups, within our church meetings. We ought to pray specifically, oughtn't we, that God would save the lost in our life? And I don't mean simply asking God save the lost in our life. But God, save Joe that I'll have a chance to share with when I pass by the gas station this afternoon. God, God save, save, my, save my brother Charles. Be at work in his life. Send someone to him that can communicate to him in a way that I simply cannot. The beauty of the gospel that he might see and believe that Jesus is Lord of all. It ought to be a part of our prayer life that we are asking God to save the lost people in our life. There's just so much that we can do in terms of persuasion. And by the way, the Bible, when speaking of persuading someone, speaks of our persuading them as to the truth of the gospel. But that yet comes short of the turning of their heart. Only God can do that. 
Ought we invoke the name of Jesus and implore that the God of heaven would move within their hearts that they would see and believe that Jesus is king? Jesus prays the prayer of worship and then he prays for the lost. These before ever getting to where most of us spend the majority of our time in prayer. He says, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, this is not a first world prayer, is it? We don't pray for daily bread. We pray for far more expensive provisions. Most of you have daily bread enough in your pantry for the next week or two, maybe beyond. Some of you are due for a grocery trip and you might struggle to get through the next three or four days, but most of you are not praying for daily bread in the same way that Jesus and his disciples might have prayed for daily bread. There is a place for, we should not discount, praying for God's provision in our life, that God would provide with regards to whatever need it is that comes up in our experience. But note that this is not first and foremost in the pattern for prayer that Jesus establishes here. Jesus prays worshipfully and Jesus prays evangelistically before he ever gets to praying for these kinds of, of needs. In the sort of Western stylized brand of Christianity that we find ourselves swimming around in, there seems to be a lot more interest in what Jesus can do for us than who Jesus is. And I would warn you, caution you to be on guard against approaching the throne of heaven in such a manner. I don't think there's anything too big, and I don't think there's anything too small that we can bring before our king. But we ought to take a moment as we come before the king to still our hearts and, and to correct our thinking, to meditate on who it is before whom we come. Yes, we've been granted access to the Father, but we don't come casually, strolling into the presence of the king. We come carefully, but boldly, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Bring him all your cares and needs. Paul said, my God, who is great in his riches, will provide for all those needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus teaches us here to pray the prayer of worship, to pray for the lost, to pray for provision. Notice next, Jesus instructs us as to how to pray repentance. Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. Now, we're comfortable here so far, right? Jesus, Father, forgive us our sins. Forgive us of the things that we've done. Now, you don't necessarily need to come to Jesus with a written record of all of your crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors for the day, with a detailed list of all the things that you've done in order for those sins to be forgiven. It is adequate at times that we come before Jesus and simply say, God, forgive me of my sins. What I usually intend when I say, God, forgive me of my sins, is that there's probably a lot of sins in my life today that I wasn't aware of. There are some things that I did, perhaps with good intention, but they were just boneheaded decisions. And God, I pray that you'll save me from the consequence of those stupid things and forgive me of the things that I've done. 
But it's not a bad thing when you're aware of the presence of sin in your life to get alone before God and say, God, let me lay bare what I've done to offend your holiness. And God, I pray that you'll forgive me of my sin. Now, Jesus said here, forgive us our sins, but note what he says next. For we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. Now, we like to have our sins forgiven, but we're not always a huge fan of forgiving those who sin against us. We might describe what Jesus teaches us to pray for here as the prayer of grace. Grace for us in that God would look favorably upon us, that he would grant us forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ. But grace beyond that. Grace that empowers us to extend the same measure of grace afforded to us to those around us. When when we talk about grace in our culture, in our context, we mean it's something that's relatively passive. That we don't get what we deserve. But when Jesus speaks of grace, he speaks of something that is active. A a grace that not only deals with our sin, grants us grace and mercy from the Father, but a grace that empowers us. A grace that enables us to walk worthy of the calling placed upon our life. Jesus says in another place in the Sermon on the Mount, That if you don't forgive those who sin against you, that God would not forgive your sins. Do you know why Jesus can say that? Because the grace, the grace through which your sins are forgiven is such an active and powerful grace that it imparts to you the ability to extend the same grace to those who sin against you that God has extended to you. Here Jesus teaches us to pray the prayer of repentance and there is at least implied here the expectation that there might be some wrestling with forgiving the debt of those who have sinned against us. It's far easier for us to evaluate our own personal deservedness for forgiveness than it is to look at someone else's circumstance and say, well, sure, they ought to be forgiven of that. They didn't intend it that way. Jesus teaches us to pray for grace, grace for us and grace for those who sin against us. I think this is a big deal, and I'll tell you why. Because the presence of unforgiveness in your heart will prevent you from prayer. It'll keep you from going to God in prayer. In the same way that sin does. Sin will keep you from going to God in prayer. Anger will keep you from going to God in prayer. If, If you're angry and you sit down to pray, you'll, you'll either stop praying or you'll stop being angry. If you're harboring sin or hostility in your heart towards someone else and you sit down to pray, you'll either cease the sin, confess the sin, and put away the bitterness, or you'll cease the prayer. If you're honest, there are probably a few times when you just say, Lord, I won't pray right now because I'm mad and I won't be mad about it. Here, here Jesus says, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against you. Now, this is really basic, fundamental stuff. But I'm telling you, if you lay hold of the power of prayer in your life, there is no end to what God might be pleased to do in you. Jesus teaches us the prayer of repentance. And then lastly, a prayer for sanctification. He says, Father, your name be 
honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. God, protect us, guide us, and guard us from sin. You know where the weak spots are in your life. You know the sins toward which you have an inclination. You know where you struggle. Bring them to Jesus. Say, God, in this area of my life, under these particular circumstances, I need an added level of help here. God, God, help me. Help me to be sanctified, to be purged of sin, to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to live a holy and a righteous life. You do know that God is still concerned that we live holy and righteous lives, right? Yes, yes, yes. I, and and, and I, am, I am convinced that in the same way prayer operates in, in bringing the, the power and the presence of God ever nearer in our life, so too does our want to walk with Him in holiness. The glory of God is pleased to dwell in the midst of the holiness of His people. And when there's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, there'll be a hunger and a thirst for prayer. And when there's a hunger and a thirst for prayer, there'll be a hunger and a thirst for God. And when there's a hunger and a thirst for God, there'll be a hunger and a thirst for prayer and righteousness. Yes, yes. Jesus provides us here with a pattern for prayer. Notice secondly in our passage that Jesus exhorts us to persistence in prayer. Not only does Jesus give them the pattern in verses 2 through 4, he gives them an illustration here of the need to continue in prayer, to persist in prayer. He also said to them in verse 5, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. There's a cultural thing going on here, by the way. We know a little about this in the South, especially here in the hospitality state. When someone comes to your house, there is a special obligation to feed them. And you all as a congregation are very good at feeding people who come to your house. You've been too good to the preacher, feeding him when he comes to your house. But this is, this is even deeper in Israel's culture, in, in Israelite society. It was to your shame or dishonor if you failed to give safe watch and food to the friend who came by your house, even under these circumstances, unexpectedly. So this person has received an unexpected guest. And he doesn't have enough bread to provide for this man's meal needs. In verse 7, uh, Jesus continues, he'll answer from inside. He's gone to the neighbor, and the neighbor says, it's late. Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to get you anything. Those of you who have small children can appreciate that Jesus has included the presence of children in the illustration. You can get most anything out of Brother Wade and Miss Brandy most any time of the day. But if that baby is in the bed and you knock on my door, I may not be spiritual when I get there. You know what I mean? Here, here Jesus says that, that the friend cries out from inside the house. Don't bother me. It's late. I've locked the door and the kids are all in bed. In verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, 
Yet because of his friend's persistence, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. Just so you'll stop knocking on the door, he'll eventually bring you some bread. Before all of the children are awake, he'll come and answer the door. Jesus said a part of prayer is persistence. That, that, you, that you come before God and you stay before God until heaven and earth has been moved, that an end has been achieved to the need brought before God. There is great value in persisting in prayer. I like to talk about the spirit of Jacob in prayer. Remember when Jacob slept in the wilderness and he was awakened wrestling to a man, an angel of the Lord, essentially Jacob wrestles with God. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. He touches his hip socket and Jacob limps the rest of his life as a reminder of that wrestling match with God out there in the desert. But Jacob persists in holding on to God until God assents to bless. And indeed God did. Now he limped, but God blessed him. And so, some of you would do well to limp a little as a result of the persistence that you've enjoyed with God in prayer. When you come before God, stay before God until a resolution has been reached. Pray and pray and pray and pray. Are you familiar with the 100-year prayer meeting? In the 1700s, there was a group of Moravian believers, exiles, in an area of Germany known as Saxony. They were led by a young preacher named Zinzendorf, and they began to pray. And for a hundred years, a hundred years, every day and every hour on the hour, members of that church were praying that God would do something great within their fellowship. For a hundred years, they prayed. And do you know that 65 years into their prayer meeting, that that little group of believers had sent more than 300 missionaries out into the harvest to let the world know that Jesus Christ is king. Their, their pastor said it was that the whole place represented truly a visible habitation of God among men. Are you familiar with the Haystack prayer meeting? It was a little prayer meeting of five college students who gathered together in a barn. That's why the name Haystack Prayer Meeting. And they began to meet there persistently. Four years after beginning that Haystack Prayer Meeting, their persistence in prayer matched with the power of God who is in heaven gave rise to the modern missions movement. And every missionary sent from a Western church today is at least indirectly touched by the prayers of those five college students persevering and persisting in their prayers before God. Every major missions movement, every major awakening event, every great revival, and behind every great preacher of the gospel is persistence in prayer before God. There's some people, some things that you used to pray for that you've given up on. Persist, pray, and pray, and pray, and pray with earnestness, and then pray some more that God would do something about this pressing need in your life. It may be that God turns your heart, that your perspective is changed, but do not relent in your prayer until God has brought about a remedy. 
There is here the promise of prayer in the third part of our text just quickly. Verse 9, Jesus says, So I say to you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you'll find it. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Do you hear the certainty with which Jesus speaks? Now, here's the frustrating thing, and I think what gives us some pause about, about being so bold in embracing the promise of prayer that Jesus gives us here. There's a whole world filled with people who have distorted and perverted this passage and, and, and have leveraged this as assurance for themselves that God's in the business of Cadillacs, big houses, and fast jets. And have boldly declared that, that this is the realm within which this promise is to be applied. And there are few things, few things that, that disgust me any more than the violence that that party of people have done to the Word of God. At the same time, there seems to be a, a very unnecessary meekness on the part of the true church to boldly declare that this promise is for us. That if you'll keep seeking and asking and knocking, you'll find and the door will be open to you. Not with regards to frivolous worldly stuff about which heaven may be altogether disinterested. But about the things with this, which the scripture makes clear are pressing interest to our God. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if Jesus had said, keep persisting in your prayer and I'll be pleased to grant it. The same Jesus who said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if we bombard heaven with requests that God would save the lost in our life, that he just might be pleased to open that door for us? Wouldn't it stand to reason that if Jesus has made such a bold promise with regards to prayer, and we know the heart of Christ with regards to missions, he said, you will be my witness in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. From here to there, everyone is going to hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if we got before God and said, Lord, use us, use us, use us, and bring it about that men and women and boys and girls of every tribe and tongue would know that Christ is king, that he might be pleased to grant that request? Wouldn't it stand to reason that if we have such a bold promise from Jesus, that if we got before God and said, God, help us to walk worthy, purge us of sin, knowing that God's will is our sanctification, that Jesus just might be willing to invade our little life, purge us of sin, and help us to walk faithfully before our God. The promise is for you, and it's for me, and it's eternally significant. There is the promise that if you'll keep seeking and asking and knocking, that Jesus is pleased to grant your prayer requests. Yes, yes. We, we think of prayer in crazy ways sometimes today. You, you can't be on a social media account without someone sending you thoughts and prayers, which is always an indication that the gift of, or the discipline of prayer is totally misunderstood. You don't send your prayers to anyone but Jesus if you want them to make any earthly or heavenly difference whatsoever. Send your prayers to Jesus. That's where your prayer should go. 
It, it also suggests that we believe somehow that the power is in the self-will that's mustered as we pray. There, there, there are people that seem to regard Christian prayer in the same way Eastern meditation is regarded. That what we're trying to do is sort of muster up this strength or ability that derives within that enables us to overcome this particular issue. It, there is a sense in which there is no power in prayer. Your prayers themselves are powerless. The power is not in prayer. The power is in the God who answers the prayer, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond anything that you could hope or ever think to imagine. God has the power. But we have been given access to the power of God through the medium of prayer, and we don't get it arbitrarily either. That is, God isn't just handing it out like we throw candy from a parade float. We have the gift of prayer, the medium of prayer, access to God in prayer at an incredibly high price. The price for the access that you and I enjoy by faith to the God of heaven was the blood of his very son. Jesus shed his blood in order that you and I might have direct access to the throne room of heaven. When we pray and conclude in Jesus' name, that's not just a polite way to put a ribbon on your prayer. We are there invoking the power of the name above all names, that there might be effectiveness in our prayer life. We are there noting that, Lord, we have nothing in and of ourselves to commend ourselves to you. We have no reasonable access to you apart from your son shedding his blood for us. We now, at the end of all things, with our prayer now before you, invoke the power of Jesus' name. We have sought and we have asked, and we are now knocking on the door. But, Father, we want you to note that we don't do so in our own authority, but by the authority of Jesus' name. It's Jesus' name. It's Jesus' name that lends power to our prayer. And I want you to know that this morning, for those who are up real close, and those who may be very far off, that there is access to the God of heaven through Jesus' name. If you're here as an unbeliever, I want you to know that on your own, you have no right to prayer. But through the blood of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, there is access to the God who hung the earth on its axis. I want you to know as, as Christian folk that if you're walking in a powerless way, living defeated, struggling with sin and temptation in your personal experience, I want you to know that you don't have to because there is access to the power of heaven through the medium of prayer bought at a high price at the blood of his son.